Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. As always, if you're listening to this on any of the podcasting platforms, I would really appreciate a five-star review. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please be sure to hit that like button, comment, share, and subscribe. Now, as always, we've got an absolutely wonderful guest here. Laura, it's fantastic to see you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm flattered. Absolutely. Now, Laura, for those out there who don't know who you are, if you could tell us a bit about your story, your background and some of your career highlights. Oh, of course. So Laura Bartkevich, I'm from the Boston area originally. I started my career in recruiting and I actually really struggled to find a role when I graduated, ended up taking a secretary job because I needed health insurance. I'm American. And then two months in, got offered to do recruiting. I ended up doing quite well there, coming up with this plan for myself that after five years in recruiting, I'd find a company to relocate me to Australia and then move into sales. And then I'd find a company to relocate me to London and then I'd move into management. And so I've been in London for five years after spending five years in Sydney with a brief stint in Melbourne. And it's been a really fun ride. I think some of the highlights for me when I got into recruiting, I was rookie of the year. I then was president's club the next three years I was there. I moved into recruiting in Sydney and the culture just wasn't a great fit for me. And I ended up networking myself into a job at LinkedIn. And at LinkedIn, I maintained the top 10%, ended up at club there, got a really beautiful trip to Vietnam, and then decided after five years, it was time to move to London. I thought if I don't go, I'll always wonder what if. And so I was super happy there, but figured it was time to go explore Europe and ended up finding a company to relocate me to London and realized I was in an enterprise sales role and I really wanted to move into management. And I made that my path and I have been in management for the past three years now. So I'm now leading a team of nine AE and really enjoying it. Wow, I am so excited to unpack your story. <laughs> There's so much in it. So I, I want to start with just the, the travel piece here and, and all of these amazing insights that you've had going from country to country. So take us into the moment for the first time where you decided that you wanted to move from Boston elsewhere. Why did you do it? What was that experience like? And why did it ignite that bug for you to want to do it more times? Yeah, to be honest, I grew up in New England, which and most people stay in New England, and I was really happy there. But I think when it came to university, I didn't go to different places because I was kind of scared. And after four years of working in a role where I was doing really well, making good money, I just wasn't that happy. And I started traveling quite a bit and realized there was so much more out there. So I'm the planner person. I always have a plan. I set ambitious goals for myself. I like to keep them. So after traveling a bit, I was like, why am I just staying in the same thing? I'm making good money, but it's just money. And so I thought, what's the worst that can happen? I'll put myself out there. I'll see what I can do to try to get a company to relocate me to Australia. If that works out, then I'll go to London. I also assumed these timelines would be like a year. I'd go to Australia for a year and then I'd go to London for a year, which 10 years later of being abroad obviously wasn't realistic, but it was something that I thought if I don't do it, I'll always wonder like, what if, what if I did? And I thought I would look back and be happier with my life knowing that I gave it a go rather than 
staying and always wondering like, what else could I have done? And I was, had saved up enough that I felt like it was realistic. And I did it through finding companies to move me around, which also made it a little bit easier. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think what's fascinating about your story and all of that is that you've just been bold enough to do it because I even think of my own career. I've had multiple opportunities to go abroad. I've gotten really close and then there's always been something that stopped me taking the leap. So if you were actually advising someone out there who's really thinking about whether, you know, global work experience could aid or, or help their career in some way, be useful to hear about ways that you think it's been beneficial to your career so far. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think it. I think my mom gave me the best advice when I was thinking about this. My parents didn't want me to go, but I think they both knew that it would be something that would be really rewarding. And my mom, her advice was, Laura, you can always come home, but you can't always move to Australia. And I thought that was really sat with me for a little while because I took six months to make the decision and I was teetering and umming and awing. Should I do this? Should I not? Because I didn't know anyone in Australia. I'd never been there. I didn't know anyone. I was like, I'm just going to roll the dice and do it. What's the worst that can happen? And I thought it, for me, there are multiple different learning learnings that have been so rewarding. I think challenging yourself to get comfortable being by yourself and with yourself is really great for your personal development and for your sense of self. I think it's also professionally, it really gets you to think on your feet build a life on your own for yourself, build new personal networks, which is really challenging but fun and also just makes you more resilient. I moved to, found companies to move me to move me to both Australia and London by reaching out to a variety of people and introducing myself. And a lot of people were really friendly and offered help. A lot of people didn't get back to me. And I think that's really got me, obviously I'm in sales. I have the sales mentality. It's going to take 10 no's before you get a yes. And I apply that to a lot of different things. So with moving abroad, I applied that with, even once I got there and I got to Sydney, I, I looked at people who were American expats in Sydney on LinkedIn and reached out to everyone and said, what's the chance you have 30 minutes for a coffee? I would love to get to know you and learn about your background, really impressed with what you're doing. What's the chance you have time for coffee? A lot of people didn't respond, but a lot of people did. And I think that really helped me get comfortable with getting shut down, people saying no, but also that there's a lot of good people out there if you put yourself out there. But if you don't try, the answer is always going to be no. It's a phenomenal lesson in all of that. And with two questions in, and I'm already a bit inspired to find a way to make some kind of global work experience happen myself. So really appreciate you sharing that story. I want to pivot now to the recruitment piece, which sounds like it was the start of really your, I guess, corporate career or some kind of inroad into the sales arena. So just talk to us about how you ended up in that role and what the experience was like there. Okay. Yeah, this is a good one. I graduated in 2009, giving away my age from university, and that's when the housing market had tanked. So I'm trying to find jobs in the States, and I was thinking of going to law school, and 
I knew that law grads had one of the highest unemployments across Boston. So I was like, what am I going to do here? This doesn't seem like a great opportunity. I knew I needed to find a company so I could get health insurance because I'm American. And so I ended up just applying, ended up landing a receptionist job and it offered health insurance. And I was like, okay, I can figure out what I want to do from here, but at least I have a baseline to start from. After two months in, I had reorganized their full front office, improved like three different strategies of how they did references, managed internal admin, and I was still bored. So my one of the directors of recruitment, it's contract recruiting in the States. So you're helping big banks, finance companies, find software engineers, developers, designers, data analysts, developers, anything that you can imagine, business analysts, anything in the technical realm, and place them on contracts for like big finance companies or software companies to work to implement an internal software. So the director of recruiting asked if I wanted to give recruiting a try. And it's a company that the only people that had been working there had five to 10 years experience. They were all very tenured. So I was kind of a guinea pig for them. Let's see. She has the personality. She obviously wants to work hard. Let's give her a try. So I join the web development team helping place software developers. And I'm with the top three recruiters in that team. They are the top three in the business of around, I think, 70 recruiters, and they're the top billers. So I join, I know nothing, and I'm like, okay, I have a lot of homework to do. I'm going to try to teach myself all of this. I'm relying on some of them to help me, but they're very much like, this is my thing. This is what I do. You're just going to get in the way. And so I was like, okay, what do you do for activity? You make 100 calls a day. So I'll make 120. You send out this many emails a day. Okay, so I'll send 10 more. I tried to figure out like what the baseline of activity was for all the top performers and then figured that if I did just a bit more than they did every day, that I could be a top performer. And I think that's what really kicked things off for me in recruiting. And then once I started getting that level of activity, I made sure I was there earlier than everyone else, stayed later than everyone else. And really, it was a grind. But I thought it really gave a lot of best practices to move into sales. And once I started doing really well, I I was rookie of the year, I had placed, I think, more people than some of the tenured people. I was fifth out of, I think, the 70 something in my first year. And then the second year, I was in the top three, outbeating one of the top performers that I was competing with. And after competing with them, I just started competing with myself. Like, how can I do more activity than the day I did before rather than how much activity than they were doing? Because that didn't matter anymore. Wow. It's an incredibly powerful story. And it's amazing how you can make success and outcomes almost become a bit of a maths equation, right? And sometimes it can become that simple where you look at your activity metrics, your leading indicators, simply pouring more fuel on the fire. And it's amazing what results you can drive. What I'm curious about within your story, though, and and all of that that you just said is how much of this you felt was really innate in you as a person? Because some people might argue that a lot of what you just described is this mentality that you seem to have being very driven, very focused, seeming to be willing to really lean in and make things happen. Do you really believe other people can be taught some of those things that maybe seem like they were innate in you? I'd love for you to just explore that. Oh, yeah. For me, I got rejected so much on the job search. And then the I was so, so focused on proving myself that I 
don't think there was anything I wouldn't do to be to do well and to prove that I deserved a seat at the table just like everyone else doing well. And I think it takes overcoming some of the adversity of being told that you can't do it, you aren't good enough to actually want it. I think having someone who, you know, has done okay working medium hard isn't going to be able to switch it on because they don't necessarily want it as badly. I think it does come from being told you can't do something and really wanting it more than other people or having that mindset that no is not an option. So you're going to go through and you're going to call 100 people and you're going to have 80 tell you no, but you're going to have 20 tell you yes, or 20 at least be open to having a call with you. And that just moves the needle. But I think it does take a bit of rejection to make you want it more. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Ton of power and all of that. So you've become top biller, won some awards as, you know, best new starter, all of these types of things. Tell us about the transition after recruitment. So what came next and what was your criteria for making that next decision? Yeah. Well, so I was relocated. So I found a company in recruiting to relocate me to Australia. I wanted to move into tech, but I thought it would be easier to find a company where I was already doing well in recruiting to find another recruiting company move me, and which I did. And I was so grateful for them. The culture wasn't exactly what I was looking for. So I figured I would start to get to know, meet other people and hear about different opportunities. I'd actually messaged quite a few people on LinkedIn and one of the people to get back to me opened up the Sydney LinkedIn office. And he had said, your background looks great. You should consider LinkedIn as an opportunity. I'd used LinkedIn software consistently for recruiting to find candidates, place candidates, jobs. I knew everything about it. So I went through the interview process. I had never sold software before. and But I was really excited because I loved the platform. And I knew how valuable it would be and how easy it would be to help companies internalize recruiting using the platform. So for me, it seemed like a no-brainer. I'd also used LinkedIn to relocate myself across the world to move to Australia to begin with. So I knew how powerful it could be. And it helped me establish my network there to begin with. So for me, that was a really easy pivot. But what I didn't know is I had never prospected into companies. I'd only prospected into people. I didn't know anything about demos. I had a good idea of the products, but didn't really know how to manage a sales process. So it was a a lot of learning for me, but I think I applied a lot of the same mentalities when I got there of, okay, how many how many emails do I need, need to send or prospecting emails? How many touches do people send? How many meetings do I need to have a week? How many discoveries do I need to get to a demo? And tried to use the math of like, okay, if I get 20 no's, it's yes. What does this look like for someone who's great? Now, what does it look like for someone who's not as great? And what if I'm somewhere in the middle for the first year? And really tried to set myself those goals of prospecting more than anyone else did, making sure I had more discoveries than anybody else did, and then getting help on all my demos until I actually got to contracts and really just following a very diligent sales process is I think what helped me stay on top. And it was really just a rinse and repeat with numbers, to be honest. Absolutely. I I really want to double tap on that shortly before doing so. One thing that landed with me when you were talking about coming on board with LinkedIn was just, there was a lot of passion around one, you being a user of the platform, 
And two, just a lot of passion around the vision and the mission of the company is kind of what came across to me there. So I, I want to encourage listeners, you know, who might be thinking about taking their own career decisions, you know, how important you feel that actually is when you're looking into a company, having that belief and that passion about what that company actually does, what they stand for. How much do you think that should play a role in a decision? I think that comes across on every sales call. So if you're looking to get into sales, I think it makes a lot of sense to be investing your time selling for a company and helping a company that you actually align with their values, their product, what they do, because it's going to come across with the customer. If you're just in it for the money, you're going to have a, a lot harder of a time actually selling the product, which I think it makes sense to everyone. But a lot of people come to the conclusion like money over something I'm super passionate about. It's how can you find both, which Absolutely. I think is super important. Yes. And I, I couldn't agree with you anymore. In many cases, you see people chasing the, the wealth and chasing the money when in reality, I say, if you focus on all of the other variables, in many cases, that the, the wealth will just become a byproduct because when you're passionate and you feel invigorated and you wake up every day and you just really feel excited about what you're walking into, you're going to perform better. You're going to operate better. And as a result, you have happy customers and a happy pocket or wallet or purse depending on whatever you have. So let's talk a bit about sales, right? Big picture, because one of the debates out there, which I'm sure you hear about as much as I do is, you know, is sales an art? Is it a science? In some cases, it, is it really based on a system? And one of the things that stands out with, with yourself, Laura, is talking a lot about doing the numbers, doing the activity and really breaking things down to, if I have these inputs, that's going to lead to this output. So being really predictable about the way that you go about your business. So just break out for us, you know, how much of, you know, selling you think actually comes down to just the fundamentals of numbers and activity versus some of the other things that people give consideration to. I think the basics are all numbers. So, but that's just to get a bat at the table. And then if you think about it, like you can't even get baseball references, but you can't get any at bats if you aren't doing everything to get up to the plate, which means it's such a numbers game to prioritize your accounts, get the right contacts, make sure you're reaching out to the right contacts with the right messaging. All of that is numbers. But once you're in the meeting, that's where I think it becomes the art, the art of active listening, probing questions, getting second and third degree pains, really actively listening and recapping what you heard, having a really strong sales structure, and then being able to really align your product's solutions to the problems that you heard and ensure that you are talking through the value that you can add. If you're just doing the numbers and then talking about features and functionality, you're never going to be a great seller. It's all about solving problems, focusing on value, but the numbers really help you get there, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, some people will now be thinking, right, well, I want to get better at my craft. And so when you think of some of the metrics, it's easy to say, right, go from 50 dials to 100 or, you know, whatever a metric it is that's in focus. But I love what you said about the art when you're actually in a deal. So for someone who maybe wants to take make improvements, for example, on, on discovery or the way that they're interacting with customers and things that maybe aren't as linear as going from 50 to 100 dollars is there any broader advice that you would you know make based on things and observations you've seen in your own career to say maybe start with this or focus on this to help you to start to make those improvements on the art side 
Yeah, I think watching your own calls really helps with digging into discovery. Are you asking questions? When you hear pain, are you digging into the metrics around the pain? How much time are they wasting? How much money are they wasting? Are you actually getting tangible impacts for them personally and then for the business as an overall? How does this align with the overall business goals. I think listening to your own calls and really digging into your discovery helps you understand what's good about it, what's not so good, and getting into a habit of constantly giving and getting feedback. Who on your team can you shadow and listen to their calls and have them listen to yours and then give each other feedback? And keep doing that with different people so you can take questions that are really impressive from your peers also so they can learn from you too. But if you're getting into that coaching mentality, whether it's with peers, whether it's with yourself, you become a much better rep and you're much better at asking more in-depth questions and those multi-layer questions, not just hearing, oh, this is a pain point and I'm going to try to solve it. You're getting the customer to really tell you about it and feel that pain and dig into that, the metrics and how this personally impacts them and how it impacts their team and their business overall and the business goals, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I often describe it as going to level three in everything you do. And I see so many sellers kind of cap out at level one. They'll ask the first question or the surface level and then move on. And because they're working through some kind of process, they're just trying to tick a load of boxes. And, you know, I think that in itself can make a transformative difference. The moment that you seek to go from initiative to pain to implication and really just continuing to go through that you know, dig a little bit deeper, understand what's underpinning that, it can make a transformative difference. The question through all of that now, Laura, is really what you feel separates elite level performers from everyone else, in, a, in other words. So when you think of, you know, the top sellers out there, you yourself becoming a great seller while you're out in the field, you know, what are some of the traits, the characteristics, the way that those people operate versus everyone else? I think it's a finesse of being very driven, very resilient and getting used to being told no, 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 and then not letting it get them down. So being very emotionally resilient and resilient in their role of being able to be organized, consistently prospect, no matter how good your SDR team is or BDR team is, knowing that your pipeline is still your responsibility and that you are hyper diligent about your weekly KPIs and your weekly metrics, and you're trying to beat them the following week, but also that you know you treat every deal and you go into every meeting prepared. You understand their business. You know, have a strategy for every call and, and what you hope for the next steps to be. And then you're planning for what the next step should be and getting alignment from there. But I think what sets apart elite performers are that they are organized, prepared, resilient, and very competitive with themselves, not necessarily with their peers, but how do they beat their past metrics from the week before? And they're thinking really strategically about their role, their book, and they're leveraging other people. They aren't someone who just relies on themselves. They know that selling is a team sport and they're going to leverage their manager when someone goes dark, talk to a peer about a deal that they're struggling with. Getting multiple mindsets in on a deal will help you sell it and probably help you sell it more quickly than just you on your own. And I think a lot of people underestimate the value of your network and your peers and your team. And I think that's something that really helps people 
do tremendously well compared to people who just do well. Being a, a quarterback in your deal, seeing as you raise baseball, I'll bring up American football briefly there. <laughs> exactly. you, you, you also mentioned in all of that, just the emotional resiliency part, which I'm a big fan of because anyone who's followed me for some time, I, I talk about mindset endlessly. Want your perspective on how, if you believe you can actually build resiliency, because you think about things like organization and there's tactical ways you can become more organized and better plan your day. How would you advise people to go about building resiliency? Oh, that's a good question. I think emotional resilience in sales is something that is easier to, okay, maybe not easy. Easy is not the right word. It's something that you have to work on. Sales is such a game of rejection that you have to think of it. For me, it was, it's just numbers. I have to get 20 no's to get a yes. So I'm not going to let any of these no's emotionally bother me. But personally, I'm a bit of a hippie. So I have a meditation practice. I'm a Vedic meditator. I highly recommend having some sort of way to help you get some space so you can come to your day and your job with that how do I phrase this? With that ability to be a more emotionally resilient. When you meditate, I feel you take things less personally. And when you're taking every no personally, that just drains you. And then sales becomes so challenging. But if you recognize that all these no's that you have are just a step to a yes, it makes it so much easier to be like, okay, well, bummer, but I'm going to move on. And you don't, or you're maybe trying to get that no to a yes, but you aren't letting it personally impact you. And I think a lot of that for me was meditation, yoga practice, and running. Like, I think being really like physically active and not letting things personally get to you makes it a little bit easier, but also just recognizing that it's just work. At the end of the day, if you get a no, if you don't hit your target, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, it's a, a fantastic way of putting it. There's a, a saying I kind of stole from Anthony Joshua. He says, never let success get to your head or failure get to your heart. And I think a big part of the essence of that is just maintaining that neutrality in the way that you're able to operate. As you say, when you have a great success, of course, celebrate it, but keep pushing. And equally, when you have a setback, you know, don't let that rock you. It's just another thing that you've learned to be able to help you to continue to push forward. So great message in that. One of the things that you spoke about earlier, Laura, was, you know, you were very intentional about wanting to become a sales leader. And so you wanted to move country. You said you wanted to lead. So I want to understand a bit more about, you know, where that all came from. Where did the desire to want to take a management or a leadership role come from? And then your early experiences would be great to learn more about too. Well, I started like when prior to any like corporate experience, I used to waitress, bartend, manage a restaurant. And I loved, I love helping people. I think for me, even in recruiting, I was the first person to come on board. And then they started hiring a lot of people that were, had no experience. And I mentored them, brought them on board, helped them learn everything about recruiting. And I really loved it. I enjoyed training people. I love helping people. I love talking through deal challenges. And I think for me, I recognize that if I wanted to go into sales, I'd probably really enjoy it. But I'd really like the idea of management because I love helping people do well, helping train people, helping onboard people. And at LinkedIn, I was doing the same thing. I was onboarding most of our new hires, was involved in some of our recruiting, and was a buddy for a lot of the team and would really help most of our SDRs move into AE2. So I, it just seemed like a natural progression for me and seemed like something that 
I would just bring me a lot of joy and it definitely brings some stress, but it also brings a lot of fulfillment more than I think just being an IC did for me. Absolutely. It's definitely a personality trait. I get it. Not great for everyone. (laughs) Tell us what is stressful about being a leader. For me, I find that you have a team that you want to do really well. And sometimes they can be doing the right things and still struggling. And sometimes there's a lot of business things that you have to manage. Managing up is far harder than managing down in some cases, because you have all these different business implications that you're trying to figure out and you're trying to solve problems for the team so they can do what they love and do their jobs and move barriers. And sometimes those barriers are a lot harder to move than you want them to be. And I am quite impatient. I'm an action person. I, I'd i say I'm a high execute individual. I like to get things done and get them done quickly. So if I know there's a big roadblocker for the team and it's something that should be actioned right away and it's taking longer than I want it to, I find that stressful and frustrating. Yeah, I completely get that. And I guess it begs the question of how you've actually been able to balance that. You know, how have you been able to learn and continue to grow yourself? Because I know exactly what you mean. You know, I've got such a high bar with everything that I do, probably a bit of a perfectionist at time. And sometimes that that frustration when you expect people just in life to be able to either execute in the same way or do things in the same way. So have there been any been any actionable tips that you've been able to employ that have just helped you level set in that regard? Yeah, I think I kind of look at it like it's all learning opportunities. So the things that are frustrating or challenging, there's always so many more things that are rewarding and exciting about the role and kind of giving myself a balance at like the end of the week. I have this philosophy that you kind of evaluate your life every six months. And if you're happy you stay. If you're not, maybe you should think about going. And I do that with work too. But I also think having a very realistic perspective that, okay, uh, like we're having some book challenges. That's really not the end of the world. We'll sort this out. Like I trust the people I work with. I like the people I work with. There's so many more good things that outweigh the bad that it's just work. It shouldn't be that stressful. And if it is, then maybe you should reassess. Like if it's really taking a, one of my previous roles really took a physical impact on me from the stress. And it was because nothing was changing and nothing was getting done. And I think that is something that I've recognized, you know, it's time for me to go. And so it's time for me to move on and change roles, which I did. And I've been really grateful for that. But I think it's like having that realistic view that nothing's going to be perfect. No role is perfect, but do the good outweigh the bad? If they don't, maybe you should reassess where you are. Absolutely. I think your self-awareness is something that really stands out to me. You can see you you know yourself, you know when something feels right, you know when it's not quite there and that in itself is a bit of a superpower. What is it that you feel separates great leaders from other, you know, from the rest? The same way as we said with great sellers, I'd love to get your perspective, the same thing as it relates to leadership. Compassion, definitely. I think great leaders who are compassionate, who can be really transparent and give really direct feedback, but coming from a place of care, separate a lot of other leaders. And being able to be very open and honest with what's going on in the business and be held accountable for the things that you say you'll do just as you hold your team accountable. So I think it's really a dynamic of being a leader for your team is not only being really transparent with them, but with upper management, holding yourself accountable for everything that you say you'll do, but also making sure you are listening to calls, giving feedback and staying 
on top of the things that help your team be better. Because if you're not helping them get better, like that's your one role. Make sure your team is really good at their job. Yeah. And so if you don't care about them, it's really hard to do any of those things well. If you don't have compassion, you aren't going to set yourself up for success or your team up for success because they won't trust you. They won't take your feedback. And upper management isn't going to either because it's hard for them to, if you're just a numbers person and you don't actually care about your team, you might be doing some things right, but the culture is going to be tragic. Yeah, no, really interesting stuff in all of that. One thing it does make me think about is that a lot of account execs, just as the natural next step, they want to become managers. And I'm sure this is something that's landed itself on your desk many, many a time. So I'd love to get your perspective on what account execs could and should be doing, one, to take that step up, but also secondly, to sense check if that's the right step for them. Because I think we see in many cases, it's become the linear, the next thing to do. When in reality, when I listen to you, you you have a passion really for helping people that stemmed back quite early, actually, in your career and in your life. And that really stands out as a trait that I suspect really made it a natural step for you to be a leader. So that's a long-winded way of saying, what are some of the actionable things that AEs can do to take the step? And then as a second pivot, how can they sense check themselves to know if it's the right thing for them to do? I think if you're thinking of going into leadership, you should definitely spend some time talking to managers about what's good about their job and what's bad about their job. Because what I've found is it's more stressful than being an IC. You're revenue, your commission is out of your control. You're now, I think of it as my book is now these nine people that report to me rather than just me. And I'm a numbers person. I know what I need to do to hit my target. But now you're putting all that control into other people's hands. I'm a bit of a control freak. So that can be hard, but it's also really interesting. Like who can I rely on more than others? How can I you have a lot of new people joining and you have to onboard them and upskill them. Management isn't just like coming in and I guess leading a team and listening to calls and getting revenue credit. It's a lot of work that doesn't really get recognition, doesn't get appraised for, doesn't get credit for. You definitely fly under the radar and you're doing a lot of housekeeping. And I think if you're thinking of moving into management, you should get a mentor Talk to someone who isn't your direct manager about what they like and don't like with the role because you'll get a far more direct, concise, honest answer than you will from your actual manager and go into detail there and then talk to other people. I think that's a key way to learn whether management is for you. And then outside of that, if you want to go into management, getting a mentor outside of your manager is also a really great way to do that. Talk to other people, but set yourself up to be that person who gets that call by being a top performer, being the person who's going to go above and beyond to help other people on the team upskill themselves. Be someone who is top of the leaderboards. And then it's a no-brainer when you're consistent when you have a great internal brand for yourself, when you are the best at your role, when you are the best at onboarding and helping other people, it makes you seen as someone who should move into management. So if you have a really clear view that that's for you, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, and you're doing all the right things to move into that position, and you actually really like helping people and talking to people all day about what's good, bad, and ugly in their roles, then management could be for you. There's a, an enormity of gems in all of that. <laughs> so I think that's one that's going get, to get rewinded a few times. 
One of the things that actually a previous guest, Daniel Head, CRO at Braze said, which really stuck with me actually, was that some of the greatest leaders are people that just have almost the most chapters in their book because they've gone and attained mastery in their, their current role. They've just got more stories. They've got more journeys, more chapters where they're able to share and be able to help to go out there and develop that team. And I think that's part of the essence of what I got from what you just said. As I say, I'm going to have to rewind because there was a ton more in all of that. But yeah, phenomenal gems. And I just wanted to add that. Something else I now want to talk to you about is really what drives you, Laura, because, you know, what I kind of feel from you here in the studio and in the room is just a, a ton of like passion in everything that you do, real focus, real drive. So what is it at this stage of your career that's really your primary driving factor? Well, this is the first time in my life that I haven't had like ambitious goals of what's next. So I've been in London for almost five years now. I'm planning on getting ILR so I can stay here, fingers crossed, and then I'll go, which would be really exciting. But I think for me, I'm, I've am i been at Figma for a year now, and we are scaling like crazy. I've helped build a team from three to nine now, which I've really loved. And we've just opened an office in Berlin and Paris. I think for me, I'm really happy with the company. I'm hoping to move to a director role sometime in the future. I've helped. I think for me, it's really about making sure our neighboring offices are doing well. So Paris and Berlin, helping those teams be successful. I, I've gotten learned so much being involved in so many different recruiting roles here. And I think this is the first time that I don't have any super ambitious plans at the moment. I think I'm going to kind of travel, enjoy my life, spend time with my family and go home a bit and really focus on just my team, scaling the team, keep continuing the growth that we have and push. I was just actually promoted in April to a senior manager with less than a year in the company, which I was thrilled about. So I think I'm here to stay for a bit because, you know, after that six month assessment, I am pretty happy. So I don't think I have anything super ambitious planned outside of the normal everyday stuff of me being a little bit extra and trying to plan. I'm on our women in sales leadership committee internally at one of our ERGs. I have a London women in sales committee that I have like a LinkedIn group that has a few hundred members. So now that we can finally go back to real life, I'm trying to plan a few events. But I think outside of that, it's really just focusing on the role, the team and enjoying life because we can with now that COVID's over. Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, massive congratulations on the recent promotion. I mean, to have secured that in that amount of time, I think says a ton about everything that we've spoken about in the podcast so far. So kudos to you on that. We'd be remiss not to spend a bit of time on what you just spoke about with women in sales and some of the ERG work because offline we got to talk about the fact that you even came to an event that I'd put on while I was at Twilio, which is a, a DNI based event, which I'd hope you agree was a great event. Amazing, actually. I had seen never seen such a good turnout with such a diverse group before. It was a really impressive event. It was really well done. That's why I was so excited that you invited me here it's, today. It's been phenomenal. And we definitely gonna have to talk about a collaboration maybe for the next one. But just talk to us a bit about the passion that you have in that area, you know, whether it's, you know, women in sales or anything wider than that, you know, what is it that really resonates with you as to why you spend some of your time in that space? Yeah, of course. When I first moved to London, I went to a variety of different sales events and recognized that I was one of five women out of 200 people there. So it's like, wow, where are all the women in sales? Because 
in every other role I'd been worked at, there were always a, almost an even dynamic of men to women. And maybe that was because I came from LinkedIn and I was a little bit jaded with the, how you could have a gender diverse sales team. Then one, the company that moved me here, I was the only women, woman on a team of 20. I was like, oh, this is stark. And then I went to an event and I was one of the only ones. I was like, surely there's more women in London that are in sales. So I thought creating a LinkedIn women in sales group would be a good way to start. I started putting myself out there and meeting people and networking with people and thought it'd be great to have a space where other women could talk to each other, share different roles, help with anything that they want, share different events. And it's been something that's been a really nice thing to have, but I'd love to start doing in-person events with it because it's not something that we've actually done. It's really just been a community where people have been able to like talk, share, and I guess post roles and talk about roles and ask for feedback, which has been pretty fun. And I think for the ERG, when I joined, Figma, one of the women that I work with asked if I wanted to join, I think just because I have a pretty big personality, if you can't tell, and she thought I would be someone who could be a, a good advocate. And one of the events we're planning now is I'm trying to get a panel of women and I want to interview them to have hear about all their career transitions and actually talk through what are the different careers you can take within sales and what are the paths you might want to take to be an IC because the IC life is a pretty good life. And a lot of people think management's the only way and it's not. You can make really good money, be an IC and have far more flexible of a career. And so I think having being able to highlight moving into management or moving into the IC and having a panel is just a really unique way to hear from other people that are doing really well, why they've done what they have and the value that's brought them. Absolutely. Wow. Again, I feel so much passion. I've said passion about a hundred times, I think, but that tells you a bit about, you know, what I've felt and what I've seen and what I've observed. It's just been a tremendous up until this point. I just have one final question for you, Lauren. If you've seen any of the podcasts or listened, then you'll know what's coming. But it's really for you to look at out there to anyone who's listening, who wants to go from good to elite level in their career, what your best piece of advice would be to that person. Try to do 10% more every week than you did the week before would be my number one takeaway, whether it's prospecting, whether it's discos, whether it's demos, if you can do 10% more of all the activity you did last week, you'll be setting yourself up to have a massive amount of growth over the year. And that'll be a huge way to really help you keep control of your numbers and really drive yourself to be elite. Otherwise, if, if you keep doing the same thing and expecting different results, it's just not going to work for you. And I think you're going to find a lot of different hacks of how to work smarter and use those. But trying to do 10% more every week will really help you figure out what you can fine tune to be your smart tips and tactics to workarounds. And that will really set you up to be successful. Fantastic. You've all heard it here first. What a phenomenal way to, to wrap up. So Laura, hope that you've enjoyed shooting the episode. It's been one of my personal favorites. So thank you so much for coming down. Really oh, appreciate thank it. Thank you. This has been so much fun. Awesome. Thank you so much. So anyone who's been listening, I hope that you've enjoyed it too. If you have, and you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or otherwise, that five-star review would be massively appreciated. And if you're watching us on YouTube again, if you could like, comment, share, and subscribe with, and share with a colleague and subscribe, I'd be greatly humbled and appreciate it too. We'll see you on the next one.